Before I get started, kind of a quick plug for our community group ministries, uh, the way our church does small groups or Bible studies that we meet in small groups in people's homes uh, throughout the South Side. And I think uh, today's sermon is maybe a, a good reminder about why our community groups are so important. There's just no way that I can kind of cover all the material that ought to be covered for this topic today. And my guess is that some of what you'll hear today will just provoke more questions um, or just make you ornery, some of you. And your community groups would be a great place to, you know, dig into this a little bit more, to ask questions of one another, to ask questions of the scriptures, uh, to continue uh, uh, digging into what we're looking at uh, this morning. We're looking uh, today uh, at Providence. We started this last week uh, and, and wrapping it up today, uh, this idea of God's provision for God's world. We said that beginning in Genesis, especially the first two chapters of Genesis, we, we see providence at work. Uh, the fact that God provides for God's creation not by just showing up on occasion, not by hovering off in the distance and breaking in every once in a while to make sure that everything goes okay. But provision, providence is built into the very fact of the creation. The creation itself is evidence of God's goodness, of God's provision. And Adam and Eve then are called to participate with God in God's providence and God's provision for the world. Uh, we acknowledged last week that there's a competing way of understanding the world that starts in the garden as well. The genius, I said last week, of the serpent, the personification of evil, was to get Humanity to question the goodness of God. Is providence true? Is this a good world? Is God who holds all this together actually good? Or is God manipulative somehow? Are we on our own? It's up to us to take care of us, to watch out for us. And we see this thread begin in the garden and carry through to the Hebrew children who are enslaved and Captivity in Egypt. Here they live not under the providence of God, but an oppressive way of understanding how the world works. You are valued for what you can do, what you can provide, what you can accomplish. They live not under God, the text says, but under their slave masters now. An entirely different way of understanding the world. Not the providence of God, the oppressiveness of the world. And even after their rescue from captivity through miraculous means, they still live under this oppressive understanding of how the world works. God, will you provide for us this time? And God does in miraculous ways. The sea parts, manna is provided, water comes from the rock. And yet still the providence of God is questioned. Is God good? Does the goodness of God run through or are we on our own? Is it up to us to provide for us? They say we would have been better off dying in Egypt. These two different ways of living within the world through the providence of God or the oppressiveness that begins with questioning the goodness of God. We said despite the fact that many of us live most of our lives kind of under this oppressiveness, the word the Bible uses, God's providence still pushes forward. God's providence still sustains. It doesn't 
not really up to us to make sure that God provides. God is providing. We gave one example of this last week of the story of Judah and Tamar, and I won't go into all the sordid details with you again, but you'll remember the dysfunction of this family, the brokenness of it, that everybody in this story was living not according to God's providence, but living as if they had to take care of themselves, get what they needed, what they thought they needed. This leads to all kinds of interesting behaviors and choices and decisions, and yet God's providence is still at work. Judah and Tamar, Matthew tells us, are in the lineage of Jesus himself, his ancestors, his family. And so even when we live under this oppressive of understanding the world, God's providence is still pushing forward. God's mission of rescue and redemption pushing forward to Jesus himself. We said that more than just being an example of God's providence in our world, Jesus confronts the oppressive way of living that many of us have experienced. And Jesus doesn't show us the reality of God's providence. Jesus actually confronts what Paul calls the powers and the authorities, our sin, evil itself, and puts it to death on the cross so that we have evidence once and for all of the providence of God, the goodness of God, the provision of God, holding all things together, and Jesus himself defeating anything opposed to God's providence on the cross. Amen? You with me so far? Today, I want to um, uh, go where maybe angels fear to tread. <laughs> I want to talk about suffering today. When we talk about providence, when we talk about God's goodness, when we talk about provision, for many of us, it's, yes, it's encouraging. But I know our church well enough to know that at least half of us, if not more, hear this language and go, yes, but... What about? I hear that God is good. I hear this language of God's providence. But what about suffering? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay. What is it that the scriptures tell us, show us, how God interacts with suffering? What I want to try to do today is answer two uh, simple or complicated questions. First, how does providence affect our personal experience of suffering? How does the provision of God, how does this idea of God's goodness holding the world together, how does that affect our own personal experience with suffering? Does that make sense? Second question, how does providence affect our engagement with a suffering world. First, I want to ask how this idea of providence affects we understand our own suffering, and then how does it affect how we interact with, engage, step into a world that knows suffering? Questions make sense? Okay. In order to do this, it's not going to seem like I'm answering these questions for a few minutes here. So in order to do this, I want to, I want to talk about first two things that the Bible 
does not say about providence and suffering. And then I want to briefly talk about four things the Bible does say about suffering and about how God addresses suffering and evil. I want to get these six different things, two things the Bible doesn't say, four things the Bible does say, that will then, I think, allow us to answer these two questions. How does providence affect our own experience with suffering, and how does it affect how we engage with a suffering world? Are you with me so far? Okay. The first thing that the Bible does not say about suffering, about providence, is simply this. The Bible doesn't say that Christians should not suffer. We're not going to find in the Scriptures any uh, immunity that Christians have suffering. Now, most of us are very aware of this fact. So why, why start here this morning? The Bible uses language that touches this experience of suffering for God's people. In the Psalms, in the Old Testament, we we hear things like, we are considered sheep to be slaughtered. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. Jesus himself, in the Gospel of Matthew, in his most famous sermon, says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There's no immunity. There's no exception to those who've submitted their lives to Christ when it comes to suffering. And Again, maybe this is obvious, so why start out here? Simply because you and I are bent towards what I have called before an if-slash-then understanding of who God is. And if slash religion, if I do this, then God will do that. If I live this way, then God will do this. If I don't do this, if I don't sin in those sorts of ways, then God, what, owes me? Is it me? Somehow, I know what God is going to do. I know what God is not going to do. I know what my life will be like or what my life will not be like. We are bent to this way of living and understanding. There's entire theologies that are built on this. If you live this way, God will bless you. If you think these sorts of thoughts, God will do these things for you. If you don't do this, then you are guaranteed to have this sort of experience. Does anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? Nothing surprising about this. I think this is the bent of the human heart. If I do this, then God will do this for me. And yet this is not the story that we find in the Scriptures. We, those of us submitted to Christ, are also susceptible to suffering. When our if-then theology, our if-then religion, our if-then way of living is brought up against suffering, something is bound to crumble. Because if my understanding is that I do these things and then God does what I want God to do, what, what, what does it mean when I suffer? It can really, I think, only mean two things. One, I did something wrong. Messed up somehow. I didn't do enough for God or I did something bad enough that I'm suffering. And this becomes a heavy burden 
Every bit of suffering in your life, pain in your life becomes interpreted through, what did I do wrong? What do I need to do differently next time? Becomes a heavy, crushing burden. It is not the easy yoke that Jesus talks about. The freedom in Christ that Paul says is all. It is one option when suffering is to bear against if-then way of living, and the other one so often is trading in this one if-then for another. If God is like that, then I want nothing to do with him. And many of us have had those conversations with family members or friends who feel as though they have been sold a false bill of goods when it comes to God. He told me my life better, easier. And then this. So if God is like that, I don't want anything to do with that. And these conversations, ones I've had too many times with people who grew up in church environments and Christian homes who were told God is going to make your life easy, good. He's going to give you everything that you want. And then suffering comes in. Pain comes in. The bottom falls out. People walk away. You know these people. Maybe some of you are these people. You've had this experience. And so we start morning by simply acknowledging that Christians are people who suffer as well. Without this, you and I will be left with a religion that will crush us or we will resign ourselves to a world abandoned by God. So maybe it's not a hopeful place to start, but we need to start here. Here's the second thing that the Bible does not say when it comes to this topic. The Bible does not speak to the origins of evil. So maybe it says, like, are we jumping in the deep end yet? Uh, maybe for some of you, it's like, why do we have to go there? Why do we have to talk about the origins of evil? This is, my, this is my suspicion. For many of us in the room, we're already there in our heads when this topic comes up. Our hearts are already there with these questions. We wouldn't even be having this conversation, right, if evil didn't come from somewhere? Pain, suffering, where, does, where did it come from? I, my hunch is that this is one of the questions that those in the room who are not Christians today wrestle with, wonder about. How is it that Christian people can love a God and claim the goodness of a God in a world that is clearly messed up? Are you oblivious? Do you have your head stuck in the sand? If I can say to those of you who are not Christians, um, Christians ask that same question too. We just, we often don't talk about it. We often just don't claim that question. We like to act like we sort of have it together. Like our faith is just so amazing, so great, that we never would have, you know, wonder about things like, where does evil come from? But we do.
So we ask questions like, how can a good God allow bad things to happen? Or maybe if God is both good and sovereign, good and powerful, then how is it that evil can exist? Anybody have these questions asked of you before? Anybody? These are the sorts of questions that theologians and philosophers have debated for a long, long time. Is there an answer? Can we answer these things to our satisfaction? I want to say this morning that the Bible does not provide us the answer for where evil comes from. One of my um, theologians who I'll read regularly, who's an important voice for me, a, a, a biblical scholar, by the name of N.P. Wright. Uh, towards the end of his book called Evil and the Justice of God, where he examines these kinds of questions, he writes this. He says, I have ruled out to the dis- disappointment of some any immediate prospect of finding an answer to the question of where evil came from in the first place and what it's doing in God's good creation. Every attempt to explain the nature of our suffering, the reality of evil in our world, falls incredibly short in the face of actual suffering. I want to say that wondering why evil exists, wondering why it comes from, is incredibly normal, and I would say uh, appropriate. But attempting to find a neat, airtight answer just something the Bible shows very little interest in. How does this one sound to you? How does this thing the Bible doesn't say, how how do you hear it? How do you receive it? How does it land with you? Two things for me. First, I'm disappointed. I would prefer the Bible answer this question for me. The second thing, though, is that, especially as I spend time in this, it feels true. Something about the Bible's silence on this question feels true to me. I consider my own limited experience with suffering, and I wonder, could any answer really satisfy, really hold up under the duress of suffering? Are not all words of explanation about suffering shown at the end of the day to be flimsy and insubstantial when confronted with heavy, inevitable experience of suffering? I think we can know this truth experientially. Have you ever been in the midst of suffering of some kind, pain of some kind, and some good-hearted, well-intentioned person tried to explain it to you? Tried to tell you why you were suffering? Unless you're very different from me, that's not a good experience. 
Those are not hopeful words. They don't satisfy. This is the story of Job, of course, where his friends try to answer the why question in different ways, different angles, with different words, and they all fall flat. Early on in my past. Uh, I got a call um, from a woman in our church. This woman was formerly homeless. She now had a room that she was renting. And I knew her pretty well. She called and she said, I need you to come right now. I need you to come to this, this home. This is the next suburb over. Um, and she said, um, the family I'm living with is a, 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 a woman and her husband and um, like a young teenage daughter said, the daughter was walking home from school today, crossed the metro tracks, and was hit by a train. Was killed instantly. Um, And so, get in the church van and drive the 20 minutes. The family is um, a Mexican family, very little English. And in that moment, there's just no why. There's no words to try to explain why this happened. There's tears, and there's presence, and there's prayers in my broken Spanish, and that's about it. Anything that attempts in that moment to explain belittles the experience in a profound way. So I know that this is not going to satisfy all of you today, but I want to say to you that the Bible is mostly silent on this question of why and where this comes from. When we, try, when, we, when we try to manipulate the scriptures to provide answers that God has not given us, when we do this, we may end up with intricate theologies or nice Christian cliches, but neither of these have the power to actually affect our experience in the midst of suffering. So where does this leave us? Maybe the Bible seems unhelpful so far this morning not speaking to where evil comes from, not giving us any guarantee that we will escape from pain and suffering in this life. So does the the Bible have anything? Does our faith have anything helpful to say to these questions about providence and suffering, about how a good God and yet evil both exist at the same time? Yes. (laughs) Not surprised that the pastor says yes. Bible has something to say about this. But hopefully you can already tell that maybe the Bible is not going to talk about this in the way we would want it to. You know what I would love if, if all of our Bibles came with? Let me know if you have one like this. If it had an FAQ section in the back, you know what I'm talking about? Like, wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that just be helpful? Like, you know, evil. Comma, where does it come from? 
I'll be good. Good God, comma, and the question of evil. I would find that helpful. Scriptures don't give us this. Um, This is what N.T. Wright says about the Bible. He says, it isn't designed primarily to provide us information that satisfies the inquiring mind. It is written to tell the story of what God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. Some hope. So so maybe this morning our task is to approach the Bible and the story that it tells about what God has done, is doing, and one day will do about evil. If he is right, and I believe he is, then I want to ask this. What can we learn about the tension between providence and suffering from the story of God that we find in this Bible? So here now, four things that the Bible does say on this topic about what God has done, is doing, and will do about evil. Two things God has not said that the scriptures don't speak to, and four now that we can find in this story. First, God opposes evil. God opposes evil. And, 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 and this is an active opposition. Do you know the word slacktivism? Anybody? Slacktivism, this I think is it. I'm so, I know a word that you all don't know. I feel so like cutting edge right now or something. Or maybe that was like a word from five years ago and I'm really behind. Slacktivism, this idea that, yeah, I care passionately about something that really matters to me. I'm going to click like on Facebook. I'm going to subscribe to the email list. Maybe send a couple dollars during the year. That's activism. That's slackism. God's opposition to evil is active. We see throughout the story of the Bible, some of these things we've referenced already, God rescuing and oppressing people, God instructing this new people to perpetuate the evil that they had known when they were captives. We see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus who heals those who are sick, tainted by a world of suffering. When Jesus confronts and defeats spiritual forces of evil, when Jesus doesn't just say that evil is out there, but acknowledges the evil, the suffering that runs through each of us, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is God actively opposing evil. The second thing that we can say from the scriptures is that God addresses evil within our world. And that word within, I think, is an important one for us. Despite the effects of evil in our world, God has not walked away. God has not given up. As we saw last week, Genesis 1 and 2 show us the world that God intended. This is a world where God and humanity work together to care for the good world that God had made so that all of creation could flourish. This was the plan. This was the intention. This is what God was about, what humanity was invited into. How does this vision compare with the world that you and I live in? 
How does this vision we see of God's intention of what God is about in Genesis 1 and 2, how does it hold up to the world that you live in? Does it look the same? Can I tell you the best news I've I, I, I heard all week long? Like, you know, from my online news reading, checking the news on the television, the best news I heard all week long was that the Iraq war is supposed to come to an end by the end of this year. I was like, oh, that seems like good news. And I start thinking, $800 billion plus dollars spent on the war. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands, conservative estimated people who have died because of this war. And I think, that's the best news I've heard all week. Is that this is coming to an end. Hold that up against the world intended. And I wonder at times why God doesn't just walk away, doesn't give up, doesn't write us off. But he doesn't. He addresses evil within our world. This means that God is not detached kind of cartoonish picture of a god from a long ways away, maybe shooting a lightning bolt every once in a while to try to accomplish something. This is a god who is present. This is a god who gets his hands dirty in the mess of our world. This again is Glory we find in the scripture, God choosing to use people like Noah, Sarah, Jacob, Rebecca, Samson, David, Solomon, and on and on. Very human people. Not perfect. People who perpetuated acts of evil. People who made other people suffer. People who had known great suffering themselves. God gets God's dirty in these lives to advance God's purposes and providence in the world. This is really important for us to see that what God is doing to address evil in our world is not from a long way. God is advancing God's purposes within our creation. God is moving God's mission forward within our creation. God is putting providence forward, holding all things together from within the world that God created. God never set it aside. God never said, I'm going to start over again. Stepped into it and got his hands dirty that God's providence would be seen in the midst of a world that suffers. The third thing that we can say is that God directs focus of evil onto himself. If we think about uh, evil that we have seen, experienced, known, the suffering that exists in this world, we can maybe think of three different shades. The first is the evil that is represented in our personal rebellion and sinfulness. We all know this. We all know our own implication in this sermon. This isn't just something that's out there. It's something that is in here as well. Second shade, be the oppressive powers and authorities, as Paul calls them. Systems of injustice that perpetuate evil against people. And lastly would be what the Bible calls the Satan or the accuser, this kind of shadowy spiritual presence that has in mind the destruction of humanity. 
These three ways of painting evil, these three shades, give us an idea of what it is that God takes onto himself. In Jesus, we see God provoking evil, poking it, prodding it, drawing its attention to himself. All shades of evil. So, the betrayal and the denial and the cowardice of his sinful followers falls onto him. The corrupt, the petty, the self-interested governments and religious authorities, their evil falls on to him. And of course, the Satan who has been looking ever since Jesus' time in a wilderness for a chance to take down all of that evil falls on him. God steps into our suffering and directs all of the focus, all of the attention, all of the brunt of evil onto himself. And like, unlike everyone who came before Jesus, unlike our first parents, unlike the nation of Israel who got it called out for himself, like everyone who had came before him, Jesus does not succumb to the weight of evil. But he suffers. He suffers. He suffers the effect of becoming the focus of this evil, of putting it to death on the cross. By becoming the focus of every shade of suffering and evil, who created the good world becomes the God who suffers. The providence of God is now expressed through the suffering of God. God bringing, focusing, directing all evil onto God's self. And then the last thing that I want to say that the scriptures tell us, the story of the scriptures tell us, is that the empty cross points backwards and forwards to God's providence. Backwards and forwards. When we gaze at the empty cross, when we're reminded of what happened at the cross and the reality of its emptiness now, we're pointed backwards to the defeat of evil. We're not given an answer to the question of where evil comes from, but we are pointed definitively to the defeat of evil. On the cross, our sins are forgiven. On the cross, the powers are exposed as actually being powerless over us, and Satan is defeated. We're pointed backwards to providence. We're pointed forwards to providence. We're reminded of the day that we wait for, that we long for, of Christ's return. When all things will be made right, this is what we read in Revelation chapter 21. Of that day, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things. What? What? No. The empty cross points back to the providence of God, where God absorbs all of evil, all of suffering, and puts it to death. Our sins are forgiven. The powers and the authorities are confronted and defeated. Our enemy is defeated and we're pointed forwards. 
for when the Son of God, who is now ruling and reigning and putting all things under his authority, returns and sets all things right. And then, Scripture says, there will be no more suffering. Sources of evil having been exhausted on the cross, though they fight like hell today, will be defeated forever. These are the things that we can say about these questions of God's goodness, God's providence, and evil and suffering. Christians are not promised a life without suffering. And no, the Bible doesn't offer a tidy, helpful explanation of the sources of our suffering. But the Bible, I believe, does tell an amazing, unlikely, surprising, liberating, hopeful story about what God has doing, is doing, and will do to address evil. And I think that that can be enough. I think that this story can be enough. And so if it is, let's try on these two questions again. How does providence affect our personal experience of suffering in this world? And secondly, how does providence affect our engagement with a suffering world? How does providence affect our personal experience of suffering? Frankly, it's simple. We are no longer defined by our suffering. The suffering that we have experienced is real. The suffering that we're responsible for is real. We've seen, I hope, this morning clearly that the Bible does not ignore suffering. In fact, calls it out, calls it on the carpet. Jesus absorbing it. If the Bible is right about what God has done, then you and I are no longer defined by our suffering. The thing that were done against us that seem to still have power over us, the empty cross wants to no longer have power over you. The things that we have done, that we feel shame and guilt. The empty cross says there's freedom here. Why? Because every power, every authority on the empty cross is shown to be powerless when held up to what God has done. You see? You see? Every bit of suffering that seems to hold so much power, so much weight, so much authority in your life, was humiliated on the cross. Humiliated. Jesus absorbs it, takes it on, and rises victorious over it. This means that there is nothing that you have done, there is nothing that you have had done to you that defines you today. Amen? Amen? identity that you've been given in God, your place within the kingdom of God, your friendship with the Son of God, these are what define you. This is who you are. Suffering no longer holds power over you. Yes, 
It's true. Yes, it happened. Yes, you knew suffering. Yes, you were responsible for suffering. All of that is true. But there is something that is truer than that. We see it at the cross. That's how I want to answer the second question. Does, how does providence affect our engagement with the suffering world? Do you know we live in a world that knows suffering? Are we clear on this? How do we engage this world that suffers? We become the providence of God to our world. We become the providence of God to the world. This should not be surprising. This is what God intended from the beginning in the garden. This is what God has been up to all along, inviting his creation, his humanity, his children to participate in the care, the nurture, the provision of God's world. And so now in Jesus, we reclaim this identity. We are the providence of God in this world. Yes, This is the last quote in this book on the suffering of God by Wright. He says, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. I love this. The victory has been won. We've seen this clearly. We're called to what? Implement the victory. Live out the victory. Embody the victory. How? Through love that's willing to suffer. And so while suffering has no power over us any longer, we're still going to suffer. But now we suffer as those who love, as those who are God's providence in the world. I think we to understand, we begin to grasp God's providence as expressed through Jesus, our posture can completely change when it comes to suffering in our world. I have these two different images in my mind. The first is of a homeless woman I I, I once knew. And I would see her regularly. She and I would spend time in the same coffee shop. We'd have conversations together. She went to the church that I was a part of. So we knew each other fairly well. And she wore layers upon layers upon layers of clothes, no matter what the season. She carried with her all of her belongings. Huge duffel bags. I knew enough of her story to know the profound suffering that she had known in her life. Pain, the abuse she had experienced. And I think for her, these layers represent protection against the suffering world, against the evil that she had known and experienced. Anything to buffer her from this world. This is how most of us live. We don't put on layers and layers of clothes this way, but this is how we live. This is our posture, our protective posture in the midst of a world that suffers. Pay attention 
to the, to the thing that happens in your mind, in your gut, in your heart, when you encounter suffering? What happens in you? Do you open up or do you turn in? Do you pull back? Do you put on a layer somehow? This is our posture most of the time when we encounter suffering in the world. It is for me. Here's the other image. The other images of my, my two-year-old son who really loves to run around with just a diaper and a T-shirt. See, it's a very image of my friend who knew homelessness. My son hasn't encountered this world yet. Well, he's tasted because Maggie and I are not perfect. But he's not encountered profound suffering and evil yet. So there's something even about the way he runs around our house that's safe, that's free. He knows he's protected. He knows he has at least two people watching out for him. If he trips and falls, if he stumbles, we're going to be there. We're going to, you know, kiss the bump on his knee. He knows this. And so Maggie and I, will laugh because we watch Elliot run down the hallway, and it's like, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. Like, he's not planning his next move, you know? Like, I need to turn here. Like, he just, ah, running. He's safe. He hasn't turned in on himself, protected himself. It's two very different ways of living in our world. Most of us, we turn in on our, when we encounter the suffering of the world. I think, I think my son and his diaper provides us a different alternative. A way of living in the world that is convinced of God's providence in our world. A way of living in the world that is convinced that God is holding all things together. A way of living in the world that is convinced that God is making things right and one day we'll make things right for eternity. A way of living that is convinced that evil and sin and death and suffering will not have the last word. The pattern in this way of living, of course, is Jesus, who does not run from suffering, who doesn't turn in on himself, even in the garden when he knows what's coming. He opens himself up. God, your will, not mine. Does not run from suffering, but steps into the pain and suffering of others to offer God's healing and rescue. This is our pattern. No matter how loudly the forces of evil rage, no matter how profound the suffering is in this moment, our hope from the victory of God on the cross, where once and for all, every bit of evil was exposed to be powerless to the providence of God. So we do not fear suffering. We do not fear suffering. The providence of God allows us to live in the face of suffering with joy, peace, with contentment, And I say these things not as one who has known profound suffering, but as one who has, is submitted to those who have. 
the testimony of the church that has known profound suffering and still rejoices, still opens themselves up to the suffering of others, still gives themselves away so that others would live. Oh, worship team, come on up, come on up. Here's what I want to ask you to do. If this is true, if this is even a little bit true, if this is coming true for you this week, step into suffering. I don't mean to provide or to, 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 to create circumstances of suffering. Of course not. There's enough suffering to go around in our world. Step into it this week. Which requires that we're present enough to our spouse, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to know when suffering exists. So we, we, we're good at covering it up much of the time, aren't we? How much suffering is present in this room that we're not even aware of? We're good at covering it up. To step into suffering, to be convinced that the providence of God is present and holding all things together requires that we are present enough be able to see it, to know when suffering is happening. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? Some of us are just too busy to know that the person next to us is experiencing profound suffering. Some of us, our minds are always somewhere else, and so we miss what's right in front of us. If we are to be the providence of God in a world that knows suffering, we have to be able to see the suffering. It also means that ours is a church where no one can suffer alone. We have to grow into and become the kinds of people that open ourselves up when we do know suffering. Where we don't hold back and try to pretend like everything is fine, everything is together. I've told you this before, but as the pastor of this church, I'm like, we got no normal people in our church. Can I just claim that for you? None of you has it all together. None of you have, have your ducks in a row. None of you are living just perfect, painless lives right now. Now, maybe you think that, but I know that's not true. There is pain. There is suffering. And the providence of God allows a people like a church like ours to acknowledge that ourselves up to it and say, I need you to be present with me in the midst of this. I need you to be the providence of God for me right now. Am I getting through? I know that's vulnerable. It feels risky. I know that for many of us, we've not had that kind of example before. We've never seen that. But this is what God's calling into being. This is what is true for us. The providence of God expressed practically, tangibly, in conversations, in prayer, in support, showing up and being present and meeting needs. And so we look, we look, we look for opportunities to demonstrate God's providence to a world of suffering. We look for them. We expect them. We expect that God is doing a work in us such that we don't turn in on ourselves to protect us, protect ourselves. We open ourselves up knowing that God is our protector, our provider, knowing that we can step into the experience of suffering and still know the providence of God.
Let's pray. Holy Spirit of the living God, we confess to you right now that these ideas, these words, even these scriptures, these can confuse us. And so we need you to make true these things. We, we need to move from struggling to just understand something with our minds to allowing it to take root in our hearts. I pray right now for any in our church who are suffering deeply today. Relationship, mess, breakdown, financial struggle, addiction, abandonment, shame. God, I pray for those of us who are having this profound wrestling match with suffering and it feels like we're losing right now. pray two things. I pray two things. First, pray for the courage to reach out. Pray for the courage to allow others to become the providence of God for us. Secondly, I pray that in that, those who are suffering will have hope. I pray that those who are suffering will see clearly and claim loudly that this has no ultimate power over my life. I am a child of God. Evil suffering has been exposed ultimately and eternally as powerless over my life. I pray for our church two things, that we would become a people who are able to let one another in our experiences of suffering, of pain, of grief. We would not hold these things to ourselves. We would open ourselves up and allow the grace, the mercy, power, the healing of God expressed through God's people. Second, I pray that our church would become known for our willingness to step into suffering. That we would become known for a people who as a do not turn in on ourselves, protecting ourselves, but open ourselves up to a world that hurts, that grieves, and that in this, people would see a God who has risen victoriously, who has genuine hope and life to offer this world. So do your work in our lives, God. Do the work that only you can do in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you stand, please, as we sing? Please worship with us.
I think this is news for us this morning, church, um, that suffering does not have the last word, that evil does not have the last word. I, I, I think it's maybe a hard word for some of us because the idea of stepping into suffering is a scary one, rightly so. But understand that this is what God has called us to, that, that, that we were not rescued to sit around and sing songs and say nice things to each other. We were rescued by God to step into the world that God created and to be the providence of God. We were created for this. We were rescued for this. This is our purpose. This is our mission. Amen? That to me is good news. It's good news because it can only happen if God does it. Amen? We can't do it. We can't do it. Uh, And so here I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you, um, the band's just going to continue to play quietly stay as long as you want. I'd love to pray for you if you need prayer in this. If you just need to sit and allow God to speak to you, please do. Don't rush off. Angela's going to be in the back uh, at the table. Please, please, please stop by there. Talk to her. Hear how you can be involved with this important organization uh, in our city. Again, don't rush off. Please continue to stay, worship, ask for prayer. Allow God to continue to speak. So this is our benediction today. This is, again, the passage from Revelation. This is what, because of what God has already done, this is, this is where God is taking our world. This is where God is taking us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is sitting on the throne said, I am making all things new. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this and I will be his God and he will be my son. Go in peace, church. See you next week.